welcome you to church this morning. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together.
morning, church. I was asked to uh, just share and introduce uh, a little bit about myself. My name is Austin Kewen, and I am the college ministry resident here um, for at least the next two years. Um, so I just wanted to take this time to more officially say hello. If you are a college student, hello. Um, really glad that you're here. If you are not a college student, also really glad you're here. Um, I Attended Houghton for my undergrad and then in uh, grad school as well. So I graduated in 2015 from Houghton and then again in 2017. Um, so six years total there, and I spent the year away down in Lancaster working um, with a nonprofit last year. Um, but yeah, I've, uh, you know, even going into this semester, I've just been, been praying a lot about saying, okay, what, what does it mean to minister to students and what does it mean for us as a church to minister to students? Um, you know, it can be hard if you're a student to be like, I have a million things going on. In some ways, like, your Christian community feels like you're living with them. Um, you know, and to ask the question, what does it mean to be a part of the body of Christ in the church now? And really recognizing that there's an important part of that, um, that, that we have to offer as a church community. Um, and as I've been really thinking and, and praying about, you know, what, what do students need? What did I need as a student? What do the students need now? Um, a thing that I keep coming back to, and I mentioned this a little bit at the potluck last week, is just um, I hear this cry in students not for more programs, not for more opportunities to worship, not for more Bible studies. Um, they're learning great things in chapel. They have these opportunities, but they just feel pulled in a million directions, and they want rest. Um, you know. And, and as I was reading the Psalms, you come to the word selah, which means pause um, or interlude in some translations. And, you know, I, I was looking even this morning at, okay, when do these selahs, if you will, come? And a lot of times they come after, um, you know, something that carries great emotional intensity. And then it says pause. Or, you know, it'll come after an acknowledgement of who God is. And they pause. Um, or a prayer where they're just like, my enemies are here and I am beaten down. Pause. Um, and just these spaces where they really rest in that they take a breath in and out and they really recognize the gravity of what they're saying. Um, and just really sensing that need for Selah in, in all of our lives. I mean, in my own life um, and especially in students' lives, I think, as they're learning, um, encountering so many things. I mean, they're students today, oh, I mean, in all of us as a part of the body of Christ by extension, we're wrestling with a lot of things, a lot of deep questions. Who we are, what does it mean to stand on truth? Um, and there's a lot of great resources out there, um, but there's also a need for space to wait on God and to, to rest and to, to have that time to soak in that. And so I just want to encourage you guys um, to join with me in praying about what that means for us as a church um, and for you as a specific organ in that church body. 
Um, what does it mean for you to be a source and a place of rest in your daily interactions um, or in the specific relationships that you have? Um, yeah, and so if you have any specific ideas or inspirations about that, we'd love to uh, connect with you. You can talk to either myself or uh, Paul Shea. Um, we'll be working more closely with the students. Um, but I encourage you to also just let this be something that emanates in your own life, regardless of um, how direct contact, you know, how much direct contact you have with students. Um, but definitely something that we're seeing um, a need and want to kind of really champion and address in the life of Houghton students. So thanks. I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings.
Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for your grace poured out upon us, creating us, sustaining us in this world. And redeeming us from our own sins and selfishness. Father, as we come today, we thank you for being present with us. We thank you for for inviting us to pray. As we pray today, Father, we know that there are needs that we represent. There are needs all around us, all around the world. We find great peace in bringing them all to you. We pray for those among us who are grieving today. We pray especially for the family of Rick Long, who, after a battle with cancer, died yesterday. Rick, who's been a pastor in this district for a number of years, we pray that you will pour out your grace and comfort upon his family, his friends. We pray, Father, for those among us struggling with illness and pain. We ask, Father, that you would bring your healing grace to every broken body, mind, spirit, soul. To everyone who is anxious about the next stages of whatever they're facing, be peace and comfort to each one. We thank you, Father, for for your grace uh, in this church, in the ministries of this church, and as Austin was sharing, we thank you for the great privilege we have of, of being in this place and connecting with college students, academy students. We ask that you will help us, help us to know how to help one another grow deeper in you. Father, we pray not only for the ministries of this church, but the churches around us. And today we pray for the First Day Baptist Church in Richburg and Pastor Larry Allen. Pour out your abundant blessing upon this gathering of believers and all that they are and do. We thank, Father, of our nation. We have witnessed the, uh, the, the scenes unfold this week in Washington. We grieve for all who feel most Deeply the pain that we've heard about and witnessed. Father, make us people who respond with compassion and wisdom. Father, we also pray that, that you will bring civility among the leaders of our nation. That their civility might inspire civility in our nation. Father, even before them, make us your people, people of civility. That even in our disagreements, we love, we have compassion, we extend grace. Because that's what you do. Father, we pray for our world. So many problems and tragedies, war and violence and difficulties... We continue to pray for the people in the Carolinas recovering from the hurricane. We pray for the people of Indonesia who have been devastated by this recent tsunami. Lord, 
we pray that you will bring your presence to bear in these despairing and hopeless situations and that your church, your people, would be a living, vivid presence of your grace. Father, we pray for your church around the world. Thank you for the completion of the Dhaka New Testament among the people group of Southeast Asia. May your word bear much fruit among them. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Nepal, a land that's seen a great spiritual awakening lately, but still suffering. We pray, Lord, that you will bring the people to help train the Christians and the church biblically and and that there will be a rising generation of leaders who will bring your grace and your truth to bear on the people of Nepal that you dearly love and who need to know of you. Father, thank you for hearing all of our prayers. We offer them in the strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who went to the cross for us, the one who rose from the grave in victory, who ascended to be with you and has promised to take us to be where he is. Amen. The scripture reading for today is from 1 Samuel 13, verses 7 through 14. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and has appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. This is the word of the Lord. I want to uh, welcome those of you who may be guests here today, and there are uh, pads uh, in the pew rack in front of you. We'd encourage you, we'd like for you to fill one of those out, and you can uh, just leave it at the end of the pew or in your pew as you leave today. Uh, also, if it's a way to communicate with the staff, if there's something we can pray about with for you, if there, if you're more, if you have some interest in ministries of the church, ways that you can get involved or be ministered to, you can use that sheet to communicate that as well. We're going to take a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand, and let's greet one another this morning in the name of Christ.
Do you ever wonder if, if your prayers are accomplishing anything? You ever ask yourself, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep praying? It seems like God isn't responding, nothing is changing, nothing is happening. I mean, I can't speak for you, but I know those are questions that I have rather frequently. You pray about something, you pray often about something, and it feels as if nothing is changing. And I wonder, God, what's the point of it? It, These prayers, the time I'm spending, the energy I'm giving, the, the prayers that I'm praying seem to be accomplishing absolutely nothing. I suspect if you if you do spend much time praying, you've asked yourself that question in one way or another, perhaps multiple times. I think it's a question that God's people have been asking through the centuries. You see it in the history of the church. You see it in the, in the stories of Scripture. And there are things, and, and when we find ourselves in a position where it seems as if our prayers are going nowhere, they're accomplishing nothing, we're not going, it seems like they, 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 are, they are doing nothing to change the heart of God. We have a tendency to try different strategies. That's what I see happening in 1 Samuel 13. We only read a little, a little bit of that section today. It's a, you know, the, most of the, the writings of the historical books have taken a lot of context. And, and the, the brief context of this particular story that we read today is that Saul, who is the first king of Israel, is, um, has been fighting battles and he's been winning, but now he's up against it. The Philistines have marshaled their troops against Israel. And and Saul has a relatively small army to fight them. And Samuel has said to him, wait there and I'll be there in seven days. Now, you know, there's no way to communicate in those days like we have now. Samuel couldn't text Saul to say, hey, I'm running a little bit late. Uh, You know, none of those things happen. He's seven days and he waits. And Saul keeps waiting and waiting and waiting. And the seven days come and Samuel doesn't arrive. And Saul says, I'm going to have to do something. The men are deserting me. My army is shrinking by the hour. And if it keeps shrinking, you know what's going to happen. The Philistines are going to crush us. And Israel is going to be captive to them. And we can't have that. So he says, bring me the burnt offering. And I'll sacrifice it myself. Right after he's done, it seems like that's always the case, right? Right after he's done, Samuel shows up. And he says, Saul, what have you done? He says, this is bad. This is very bad. You shouldn't have done that. Now, we read a story like this and we think, well, I mean, yeah, he shouldn't have done it. He should have waited for Samuel. But what's the big deal? I mean, how bad can it be? Stuff, something needed to happen. But the context of this is that God made it very clear as the people of Israel became a nation that there were different groups of people. And the group of people that did the sacrificing are the priests. 
No one else is allowed to offer sacrifices but the priests. They are God's representatives to his people. They are the ones who do that task and not the king. Saul may be king of Israel. He might be able, he might rule the army and he might rule over the land. But the priests are the representatives of God and the king has limitations. And that's one of the limitations. Because ultimately, the priests, nor the priests nor the king are truly the, the ruler of Israel. God is. Saul says, I'm going to have to take things into my own hands. When I read that, it reminds me of what we often do. One of our great struggles, when God doesn't do what we want him to do, when our prayers seem to be going nowhere, one of the first things we are tempted to do is to say, I guess I'm going to have to do it myself. I will take matters into my own hands because it's not going to happen otherwise. And just like Saul, we say, I guess God isn't going to do something, so I'm going to have to. And we do it. And we justify that because we're going to a good end. I mean, Saul doesn't want Israel to become captive. And I can hear him saying, I know God doesn't want us to be captives. So the only way out of this is for me to take action. It's interesting that when you, at the, just beyond the story, it says that Saul's left with 600 men. I wonder if it ever flashed through his mind that that was 200 more men than Gideon had. And Gideon won a great battle. But Saul can't see it. And what I think often happens with us, when God isn't answering the way we want to, instead of waiting for him, we think what God is asking for is action. Even if our action isn't exactly what God might want us to do in the way that he wants us to do it, we're getting to the right end. And what we're really saying is the end justifies the means. We make a lot of decisions in our lives that way. The end justifies the means. It's one of the things that concerns me in what I see throughout much of the church today. Is that we say, you know, we have to reach people for Jesus. And if we have to do some things that maybe aren't exactly the way God would do them, well, that's okay because we're reaching people for Jesus. And as long as we are reaching people for Jesus, how we get there doesn't really matter. It's what worries me about the political landscape that I see and hear all over the map. Pick any party you want. There is a tendency to say it doesn't matter how we get to the end that we want as long as we get to that end. And if there are twists and turns along the way that would probably aren't the things that God would want, well, that's okay because we're getting to the end that is good. God is concerned about the end. There's no doubt about that. But God is every bit as concerned, maybe more concerned, about how we get to the end, about the journey. In fact, if we we travel the journey and make decisions that are contrary to the way God wants them done, we probably aren't going to end up at the end where he wants us. Because what we're doing is we're veering away from him. And that's what happens with Saul. Actually, this story is the beginning of Saul's downfall. It is like that why in the road that later on in five or six, eight chapters later, you find Saul not here, but way out here. So much so that his prayer life has become so corrupted that he prays to, to a witch to 
try to find out what God wants him to do. The end doesn't justify the means in the kingdom of God. And the alternative to that is waiting for God, and that is so hard for us because we don't like to wait. Our lives are wrapped up in being productive. In fact, there is probably nothing more distasteful to us in America than being unproductive. We are continually valuing and placing worth on people by how productive they are, and we do it to ourselves by how productive we are. We almost wear busyness as a badge of honor. And yet we know there is something deep inside of us that, that understands something about it isn't right. Every so often when I'm driving down 305 toward Cuba, you pass all the Amish farms, and when I'm, especially when life is hectic and busy and everything is squeezing in me, there's a little something in the back of my mind that says, I'm kind of envious of those Amish people. Just a little bit, just a little tiny bit. Not generally speaking, but a little tiny bit. Just the fact they don't have to worry about answering emails. They don't have to worry about all the electronic devices that are going off. They don't have to worry about all of that kind of stuff. There's a little bit, and I think that little bit of me is the yearning in my soul to say, maybe life should be a little different. That's why God creates Sabbath. To say to us, look, this is not your, you're not measured, your value, your worth is not measured by productivity. Your value and worth is who you are in me. You're children of God, dearly loved. And we forget that until we step back and listen to God and hear God and, and remember who we are and where our value and worth lies. Because when we forget that, what ends up happening is instead of waiting for God and trusting God in the waiting, we start running ahead. It's interesting to me that in this story, Saul, Samuel says to Saul, he says, Saul, you have done a foolish thing. You've acted foolishly. And we can tell from the story that Saul didn't do what he was supposed to do. And when we read that, we think, well, what he's really saying is that, you know, he made a mistake. But the word fool and all the connect cognates of it in the scriptures are much deeper than that. It's not just somebody did something that was wrong. There is a deeper sense to it. And you pick up that sense in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 that begins, only fools say in their hearts, there is no God. It's what's intriguing about Jesus' parable in Luke 12 about the rich man who has so much. He does, can't put it in all of his barns. And so what does he do? Instead of sharing it, he builds bigger barns and stores it. And God says to him, you fool. Because you think everything of value and worth is temporal instead of eternal. And there is something in what Sam, Saul does that is declaring God, you're not really who you say you are. There is no God like the God that we've been talking about. God is not the one who is faithful and trustworthy. God is not the one who comes through. God is not the one who we can rely on. God is not the one whose timing is perfect and whose will is good. That's not the God we worship because look at us. I can't trust him. I've got to do something. 
And we often talk about the fact that that we um, we use the phrase, you know, don't just sit there, do something. Maybe sometimes we need to hear God whispering in our ears, don't just do something, sit there. Because it's only in sitting there, it's only in the waiting prayer that you know who I am. There's something about waiting on God that separates Yahweh from all the gods of all the other nations around Israel. You read in the, in the scriptures, particularly in the Psalms, God says to his people, wait on me, wait on me, wait on me. Why does he say that? Because God is always seeking us. God comes through. God is yearning for us. God is, we, we, don't have to, we don't have to get God's attention. We don't have to manipulate God or trick God into paying attention to us. We are on his radar continually. He acts before we think about acting. He is for us and with us. And all the gods of all the other nations around Israel have gods that don't care about human beings. And so the human beings have to try to cajole them and trick them and and convince them to, to pay attention to human beings. You don't wait for that kind of a God or you wait forever. But Yahweh, you can be safe to wait for. Because he is always seeking us. Always looking for us. Always Involved with us, paying attention to us. We forget that when we wait. But it's in the waiting that we learn who God truly is. And he loves us. And he cares for us. I think that's one of our struggles with, with waiting. And with the cousin of waiting, silence. We are... Uh, I, I'm convinced that one of the reasons we are enamored with busyness is because it keeps us from having to deal with silence. Silence makes us uneasy. I suspect that for just a few seconds, after the song was done and I just sat there, it made I could feel it. Everybody getting just a little bit nervous. Is somebody, isn't somebody supposed to do something? The silence is making me nervous. And I did that intentionally. I didn't want to wait too long, but, you know, there is a... We get nervous with silence. Something should be happening. I wonder sometimes if our, if our fear of silence, our uneasiness of silence, is that we're not quite sure what God's going to say to us. If I'm silent before God, if I wait before God, He's going to probably bring judgment upon me. For the last, I don't know, eight or ten years, I have used the, the We Fit exercise program. It's a, you know, it's a thing on the, on the, the Wii Nintendo game thing. And, and uh, it has a little board that's a balance board that you stand on and you do different exercises on it. And it measures how you're doing and gives you feedback about it. You know, it's always talking to you. But one of the things that I find is that if I miss a few days... Of doing it, when I turn it on and I click that I'm the person using it, usually the first thing it says to me is, Oh, is that you, Wes? I didn't recognize you. It's been so long. Where have you been? And I was like, Who programmed this to be so sarcastic? My goodness, you know? And then when you, you know, usually you do a, a daily weigh in, a daily, you know, body check, and you stand there and the thing says, Oh, that's overweight. And I'm like, Yes, I know that. That's why I'm doing this. I realize that. Stop giving me a bad time about it. 
But it, it keeps talking back at me. And there's a part of me that doesn't want to do it anymore because I don't want to hear from the thing telling me how bad I'm doing. And I suspect somewhere in the back of our minds, that's the way we think about God. If we're silent before God, if we wait before God, he's going to judge us. And the truth of the matter is, there is a good chance God may well say to us, you know that thing in your life? We got to do something about that. Because it's killing you. You know that relationship that's unhealthy for you in the way at least it's ha- it is now? We got to do something about that because it's harming you. You know that attitude that you have? It's creating a spirit of bitterness in you. It's eating away at you. And yes, God may well in the silence convict us and put his finger on things in our lives. But it's not just to be sarcastic. It's not just to condemn us. It's to free us. It's to lead us out of the bondage of all of those things in our lives that are eating away at us and destroying us and moving us into life. Because that's God's intent for us. We miss all of that. If we don't take some time to listen and to wait And to be silent. And I am convinced that one of the reasons God doesn't answer our prayers immediately is to put us in a place where we have to sit and wait and listen. Because he's got deeper things that need to be dealt with first. Because there are things in our lives that he wants to touch and change and transform even as he addresses our prayers. You see, there's, in many ways, this, this story is leading us to the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, the line in the Lord's Prayer that says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we are willing to wait for God, we are in essence saying, God, we want your will done above everything else. We want your will above all else, and we embrace your will. Why? Because we know that what Paul says in Romans 12 is true, that your will, O God, is good, pleasing, and perfect. And when you know that, when you believe that, then waiting for God's timing is not near as frustrating As it might be. Because we know that waiting is a part of God accomplishing his will. His will that is good, pleasing and perfect for us and for every person that he has created. And Saul has a hard time seeing that. And you and I often have a hard time seeing that. Because we're not really sure that God is who he says he is. We're not really sure that God's timing is perfect, that God's will is love and grace and mercy and goodness, and that God's intent for us is abundant life. Irenaeus, the great church father, said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And that is God's will for every single person. He wants us to be alive, but we can only know that kind of life in him. And we can only 
experience that in him if we begin to trust him and wait for him. Ultimately, this, this, is, this kind of praying, waiting prayer is not, it's not the only way to pray. There are all the other ways in which we pray are good and important. But there is something about waiting prayer that I'm convinced is foundational to all the other ways in which we pray. Because in waiting prayer, the whole point of it is to come to the place of trusting God that he is who he says he is. Everything that's wrapped up in waiting prayer is a declaration, God, I believe that you are good, that your timing is perfect, that your will is love. And if waiting means, and if, if I wait for, for you, if it feels like my prayers are accomplishing nothing, and it means that I wait for you, then all I'm doing is, is finding more and more opportunities to trust that you are who you say you are. That you are good, that your timing is perfect, and that your desires for me are love and life. Because ultimately, at the center of prayer is relationship with God. And I'm not sure there's any more profound way of developing intimacy with God and trusting him. There's probably no, no more profound way to trust him than to wait for him and to listen to him. What I'd like to do this morning is to take two minutes. It's going to seem like a long time, but two minutes of silence of some time for us to wait on God, to listen to God, just to, to hear whatever God may want to say to us. Maybe in this two minutes you want to declare, Lord, I don't understand. I, I logically can't figure it out. But I'm going to wait for you. Speak to me.
Father, thank you for being who you are. Give us grace to wait for you, to listen to you, and to find that you are everything you have promised to be. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. stand as we sing together. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.